0: This is the feed from Markham, from Richmond Hill,
1: from Vaughan,
2: from Aurora, East Quillenbury, Whitchurch, Stouffville,
1: from everywhere you are. This is the feed York region's only news magazine dedicated to the issues, events, and stories that matter to all of us who live and work here.
3: Welcome to The Feed. I'm Ann Romer. In June, we commemorate National Indigenous History, an opportunity to recognize the heritage and diversity of First Nations peoples in Canada. These are their stories. Our first voice has a very recognizable name. Former Lieutenant Governor James Bartleman identified three key priorities when he was Ontario's Vice Regal from 2002 to 2007. Eliminate the stigma surrounding mental illness, fight racism and discrimination, and encourage, support, and lift up Indigenous Youth. To that end, the James Bartleman Indigenous Youth Creative Writing Award was established. Former Lieutenant Governor James Bartleman joins us now on the feed. Thank you, sir, for being with us right
4: now. It is a great pleasure to hear your voice once again and I'm looking forward to having a good chat with you.
3: Well, thank you, and I, you. So, Mr. Bartleman, yours was a very powerful voice from 2002 to 2007 as Ontario's 27th Lieutenant Governor and the first Indigenous person to be appointed to the role. How, then, did you
4: use your voice, and was it heard? I'm really happy with the way things turned out. Uh, I had these three priorities that you, you mentioned, uh, but then I also had access to a government plane to go and see for myself what it was like in these remote communities. Was it really that bad? And I discovered that it was. I went visited three places on my first trip, and in each one of them there were young people who had killed themselves. One place there were three of them who had gone one after the other. And how could this be? And the chiefs all told me it's because the kids had no hope. They gave up. And I also checked into the uh, libraries because that was so important to me in my youth and saw that, in fact, in many places there were no libraries and there had nothing for them to read. And so uh, they, I, I wanted to really do something for Uh, The kids reminded me of my my youth, and so I uh, enlisted the the public in Ontario. Uh, I didn't have a, a budget for any of this, but people were willing stepped up to help,
3: and that made a difference. I have to ask you this, and since we are talking about how difficult it is for young people in Indigenous communities, what what were your thoughts? Mr. Bartleman, the moment you heard about the mass grave discovery in Kamloops last month.
4: I was uh, shocked, uh, and uh, it was not a surprise, because when I was Lieutenant Governor of Ontario, I visited a number of former uh, residential schools, and, and I saw the little marks here, little marks there for... All these uh, young people who had uh, who had died, mm-hmm. uh, and in those even in 2004, when I uh, 2002, when I became lieutenant governor, uh, nobody seemed to care really about whether they uh, how they were buried or whether they had uh, uh, proper eat when they. At the nights and whether they read or could read or not, it was uh, it was uh, just a big gap. I and mean, I remember going to uh, talk to ministers, and they said, "Oh, well, you know, we'll do this, we'll do that. You can look at our next budget, and nothing ever happened." Mm. So I turned to the uh, first of all, I turned to the. Uh, organization that deals with uh, uh, library uh, publications and uh, said I want to establish uh, uh, libraries in all these communities. And it was just an, uh, a huge amount of number of books arrived in the OPP detachments across the province. million books came. And these books went into all these libraries, which were not libraries because there were no books in them, but they were all uh, swept up. Native Airlines uh, did the most work, uh, flying them in free of charge. And so there were libraries established, and it was so wonderful to go in to visit these communities and see kids lining up to borrow books. But there was still this problem of illiteracy. And uh, so I I remember when I was a kid, we uh, were very poor. We lived in a tent up by the village dump. And I learned to read through uh, pawing through the garbage and pulling out the comic books. And my mother, uh, who uh, could read, she had gone to grade four, in her First Nation, in her, in an, it was called a, a day uh, a residential school, days of residential schools. I mean, you, you could go to, you in a, in a, to, know, to a residential school, but go home at night. And she was beat up all the time, and oh. she had a hard time. Uh, but she taught me how to read from those comic books back in the tent, and I thought, uh, if I could move ahead with life, become a, uh, a deputy minister and become a lieutenant governor and all these things, this couldn't anybody could do it. And so, I went out and raised money uh, to establish reading camps, and uh, I raised eight million dollars and. We, every, every fly-in community in Ontario uh, participated. Uh, and uh, these kids, they just, uh, it was wonderful to see how they operated. And now uh, there are, there are 8,000 kids who attend the summer reading camps, learning to read, and the chiefs have told me, uh, not recently because of the pandemic, but they told me that the kids who attend these summer reading camps do not kill themselves. They have developed resilience. And so I'm really happy with the way that has turned out. And Frontier College is doing a marvelous job at that. And so uh, just those two things. And then, the, of course, the... Uh, indigenous youth uh, creative writing awards—they have—they have just taken off in the past uh, year, uh, and I'm pretty happy that that's working out so well. And what is what is marvelous about that is that in the stories, I mean, the kids, the kids have uh, great problems, great mental health problems and the ones who uh, won awards this year pretty well every one of them has written about the issue of suicide how you can cope with it how you have to cope with it building resilience and uh, and that is that is great these kids will focus on this on this issue as well
3: we're going to be meeting some of the recipients of the James Bartleman Indigenous Youth Creative Writing Award in the show today. May I ask you why creative writing is a way of expressing what's going on deep down inside? Why is that so helpful and so important?
4: The, um, well, look, in, in my personal experience, you know, having uh, been badly beaten up in South Africa, and then Uh, wanting to kill myself and then discovering that if uh, if I was to take a pen and start to write about my uh, early years uh, when we were sort of at the bottom of the totem pole and uh, living in very difficult circumstances, um, that uh, if I could... And and I wrote myself out of this desire to kill myself back in, in uh, uh, 1999, uh, I, it, it, it worked. I was able to uh, go back over what had happened. I wrote the first draft. It was terrible. I mean, it was terrible in terms of what I described. But then I wrote the next one, and it was much more positive. Because I could see what were the good things that had happened in life as well. And so when I uh, saw all these kids uh, killing themselves, I wanted them to uh, be able to uh, write about it. And writing, in a sense, is like having your own therapist in the room uh, talking to them. And, uh, uh, and when you write and you've got a, a story to forward, you change, and, uh, and you're able to progress in life.
3: I am absolutely awestruck by all that you have said. There's so much that you have told us now that I didn't know, and I'm not sure that our listeners knew. You've worked so hard to make a good life for yourself, and you've helped so many others, leading by example. I can't thank you enough, Mr. Bartleman, James Bartleman, former Lieutenant Governor of Ontario, for joining us on the feed. Thank you, sir.
4: Well, thank you and give my very best to your father.
3: Oh, I will. Thank you. Six talented students were honored with the James Bartleman Indigenous Youth Creative Writing Award. Here's Jim Lang with one of the outstanding recipients, Michaela Allen from New Market,
5: the winner of the Junior Off
3: Reserve category.
5: Michaela, how are you? I'm good. Well, this is a a, a very prestigious award for someone so young, uh, the recipient of the junior off-reserve category. Just describe to the listeners about the piece you submitted and and why you felt you had to write it.
6: It was um, a struggle, I guess, but it was easy to write about because I experienced it firsthand.
5: So that was your inspiration because of your life experience? Yes. Now, when you um, submitted... Your piece, did you think of anything of it? Did you think you'd get any awards for it, or you just wanted to submit it and see what happened?
6: Yeah, I was just going to see what happened, um, see where it went, really. Um, my teacher was really encouraging me to do it at that time.
5: And how old are you now, Michaela?
6: I'm 13. I'm turning 14 in July.
5: So you're going into grade 8 in July, in, in the fall?
6: I'm going I'm going into grade
5: 9. Grade 9. And now you're an award-winning writer. What was your reaction when you found out you were winning this prestigious award?
6: I was um, shocked, I guess. Um, Very surprised that it actually went through because it's been so many years since it was submitted.
5: Who was happier, you or your mom? (laughs)
6: <laughs> um, both of us were pretty excited But I think my am almost more excited
5: So now that you've won this big award What's next for you?
6: I'm not too sure um, I'm not sure if I'm going to Enter any more writing awards Or anything Or, you know Just see when it comes up
5: But is creative writing something you want to pursue in the future, Michaela? Sounds like your mom wants you to do it <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, you're a award winner. You're good, so keep doing it. Yeah, I certainly wasn't winning any awards at your age, Michaela. So I'm totally blown away by you and inspired. One of the recipients of the James Bartleman Award for the Junior Officer of Category, the very humble Michaela Allen, as you enter grade nine. Uh, I mean, now that COVID's starting to end, do you have any fun plans for the summer? Um,
6: get going some places. Maybe go and um, to a couple of
5: um like
6: parks
5: or stuff and did you have like a favorite uh, dessert food to celebrate like ice cream or cake or what's your go-to <laughs>
6: um, I don't really have a favorite
5: you just love them all
6: yeah <laughs>
5: <laughs> you're awesome Michaela <laughs> Allen Congratulations. Thank you for uh, making this country a better place. Thank you for uh, keeping the story of the Indigenous community in this country alive and well. And at someone this young, uh, only better days are ahead. Thank you so much. Congratulations and all the best and have a great summer. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye.
2: I'm Heather Seaman. Our next honoree is 19-year-old Ariel Wendling a Laurentian University student studying biomedical biology and the winner in the senior off-reserve category. Thank you for joining us, Ariel. Uh, Thanks for having me. Describe the essay you submitted. Um, So I
7: wrote about mental health um, and it's called Prevalence in our everyday lives, um, and uh, this is actually I wrote this piece a few years ago, um, but now we're just getting the results back um, for the awards um, because of the whole COVID, everything got kind of shut down, and so we're just hearing about it now. But um, yeah, so it's kind of more a piece on how um, it uh, mental health is uh, super important, and it's um, everyone struggles with um, mental illnesses and mental. Uh, they have a hard time with their mental health. So um, this is just a piece kind of saying like how it's it's kind of like, it's not anything to be ashamed of. And um, it happens everywhere, even celebrities have it.
2: Why was this topic important for you? Has it touched your life in any way?
7: Um, well, I mean, I have a lot of friends um, who do suffer from um, mental illnesses. And um, I have a, actually a cousin as well who um, suffers from schizophrenia. Um, And so I just thought that it would be a topic that was important to speak about um, and that need to be heard. And honestly, I think that now um, in 2021, it's even bigger than it was back in 2018 when I submitted this. Um, And I think that it just needed to be something that um, we discussed and and kind of uh,
2: something important in my life. Yeah. You're right. Our mental health is being challenged in so many ways. The news of remains found at a residential school in BC, and the dark history surrounding that and the impact it's had on on generations of Indigenous people is something more and more Canadians are learning about. What are your thoughts?
7: Well, Obviously, this um, moment in our history is something that um, is pretty sad, Um, and I think it's not something we discussed a lot about. And so the fact that um, this all came out in the news is something that, um, is obviously very traumatic, especially for those who had to live through this or that had a family member who was in the residential school. Um, but I think that it is something that needed to be brought to attention, um, and that people every day need to, to know about this. And we always speak about our past, like, you know, it's our past, but this is not even 50 years ago. Some of these schools, um, just closed down in like the 1990s and 1980s. Um, and so I just think it's Um, Obviously, it's very shocking and and very very traumatic and very sad, uh, but it is something that needed to be
2: discussed. Is this something that has touched your family? What have you learned from elders?
7: So, I personally don't have anyone in my family that I know of that went to residential school, but I do know that um, my great-grandmother was born on the reserve, but um, she actually married off the reserve to get away from all this, Um, and so we didn't, didn't ever live through it, but, um, it did change part of my history. Um, and so that's why I kind of, we're not there anymore. Um, and I do have a teacher who, um, I went to high school, um, like she was my teacher in high school and, um, her dad did go, I was on a residential residential school. So she did speak about this and, um, she did teach us about this a little bit. And so when the news came out, I wasn't that like, not surprised, but, um, it wasn't as much of a shock to me as it was to certain people. And so it did touch me, but um, it definitely has touched others
2: more. And I think it's just important that it was spoken about. Yeah. So well said. And back to the award, I have to ask you, what was your initial reaction when you found out you were the recipient of this award for creative writing?
7: Um, I was very grateful for it. Um, honestly, it was um, two years after the fact that um, that I submitted it, so I didn't really think that I had won or anything. And then uh, one day I just got a an email, and I was like, Oh my goodness! Like that was from a, a, a something I wrote like a few years ago. I was like, That's crazy! And they were like, We just love the piece, And I was I was very grateful, especially because um, I I like I did spend a lot of time and a lot of I I do love my writing, so um, like I do love writing. Sorry. <laughs> um, so it was it was I'm very grateful for it. Yeah.
2: And how have friends and family reacted? And how are you handling all the attention you're getting? I mean, all these interviews and things you've been doing. Um, uh, my family has been really proud of me, which um, I'm very thankful for because um, I'm
7: yeah, it's it's great. Um, and then I've had a few family members that are a little bit. Not like my immediate family that have called me and they're like, oh, we saw you on the TV. And I was just like, it's a little, it's a little different. Um, it's, it's fun. Um, I do love these interviews and I love to talk about it. But um, yeah, no, I'm just very grateful and they're very proud of me. So I'm grateful for that.
2: Was there an official award ceremony? How did that unfold?
7: So we did have a a ceremony, we did have a presentation, it was over Zoom, um, because unfortunately we can't come together, Um, and Elizabeth as well, as well as multiple other people who were there, uh, Lisa McLeod as well. Um, And it was, it was great, it was honestly such an honor to see all those people and to see the other recipients as well, and um, it it was a beautiful ceremony, it was was nice, and um, there was an, an elder doing a prayer as well, which was, it was beautiful. Um, and the ceremony was it was awesome.
2: Why do you think awards like this are, are beneficial to youth in indigenous communities?
7: Um, well I do believe that it is um, it's good that we're putting like light on like creative writing and getting kids to to, to write obviously this is when I was younger um, but it's, it's important like writing is super important I find um, in anyone's life and um, to put this light on on some uh, some children's lives—it's it's awesome. Um, honestly, I was, I was kind of shocked when I received my award, but um, it got like it got me writing, and it got other people writing as well. And so um, I just think it's it's very important, and it's also important that it is
2: um, more directed towards the indigenous community because then it gets them more motivated as well. What's next for your studies? I mentioned off the top, you're studying. Biomedical biology. Any chance being a writer is also in your future? Um, I don't really think writing would be um,
7: my like career path. I do enjoy it from time to time, but that's more just like a um, kind of like a hobby, um, more than something that I'd like to do in the future. Um, I kind of more am going towards the medical field. Um, I'm hoping because um, I'm more of a I like. I love to see people and I'll help
2: people, and that's what my, um, my goal is. That's awesome. Thank you for joining us on The Feed.
7: Thank you. For a full list
3: of the winners of the James Bartleman Indigenous Youth Creative Writing Award, go to Ontario.ca. Throughout The Feed today, the Music of Juno Award winner Leela Gilday, the story of her album North Star Calling, is next. <laughs> Welcome back to The Feed. I'm Ann Romer. Our celebration of indigenous voices continues next with the music of Juno Award winner Lila Gilday. Christina LaVecchia with North Star Calling.
8: When I dream, I remember My mother's embrace
0: And the strength of my father And the lines on his face
1: Leela Gilday is a singer and songwriter from the Dene Nation in the Northwest Territories. In June, Leela became a two-time Juno Award winner, winning Indigenous Artist of the Year for her album North Star Calling. Her shows are where she connects with fans who have followed her 20-year career. Leela has gained multiple new fans here at 105.9 The Region. She is on the line with me now. Hi, Leela. Hi, Christina. How are you? I'm still glowing. (laughs) (laughs) So the big Juno win, I caught your acceptance speech, and your husband and family were there cheering you on. How were you feeling in that moment?
0: Oh, there was a little bit of disbelief, because I wasn't really expecting to win. (laughs) I was purely, it sounds so cliche, but I really was just honored to be nominated and stand there with so many incredible artists. And um, yeah, so I was a little bit taken aback, but I was also so overjoyed, and uh, it feels like a, I don't know, this year has been such a difficult year that it feels like Mm. a very bright spot in a tough year.
1: And this is not your first win. In 2007, you won in the same category. Was this win different for you? It felt much
0: different, and not just because we couldn't all gather together in Toronto for the big award ceremony. But it just feels like um, coming to this point in my career, I'm five albums in, it's been 20-odd years that I've been full-time in music, and uh, the fact that the songs resonated with people, and, and particularly through this year, which has been a year where I think a lot of people have been forced to sit down and take stock of what really matters to them um what's important to them and and having those songs that's the place where these songs come from is a really heartfelt place and so to have my songs still resonating with people this many years later it it felt like a, it did feel much different back back then you know that was my second record and and i was kind of still relatively newcomer and so that was very exciting but this It seemed sweeter.
1: And North Star Calling also won a Canadian Folk Music Award for Indigenous Songwriter of the Year. Congratulations. And like you were saying, this is your fifth album. And when writing and recording it, did you go in knowing what you wanted the album to be?
0: Yeah, so this record, the, the time between my last record, Heart of the People, and this record was about five years between production and then six years to its release. So there was quite a gap there. I think in that time, it basically, I had taken a step back from really writing a lot, and I feel like in times of trouble, I kind of just try to process things, and then I'm able to, when things ease up, able to write a bit more clearly. So the messages that came through for me and the ones that were selected for this record were really stuff that I thought was very important for me to say, so the stories about The connection with the land the stories of the north the importance of healing and that healing journey and then also talking about mental health and the and destigmatizing the conversation on mental health i think those messages that resonate through the record were very deeply considered and i and so by the time i got into the studio i really had a good idea of what i wanted to say on the record now in terms of the vision of the musical vision, that was greatly helped by Hill Corkutis. She's a producer on this record, and she really was an incredible collaborator and, and produced the, just like helped to fulfill the vision that I had for this record. I value her, you know, as a friend, as an artist, as a collaborator. She's just a remarkable producer, a remarkable person. <laughs>
1: And success didn't come overnight. You have been performing from the age of eight. Tell us a bit about the journey that brought you to where you are now as an artist.
0: Without sitting down for a five hour conversation, <laughs> I know <laughs> um, a lot. The cold notes version is that <laughs> I started performing when I was eight. After high school, I got a degree in voice, so I sang opera, and I had fully intended to kind of go down that road because I love classical music and. I just found it so challenging and so beautiful, but um, I really wasn't hearing my own creative voice in the songs that I was singing. So the really authentic stories of being a woman, being from the North, being Dene, like all of these very unique stories that I have and, and identity that I have was not coming out in the music I was singing. So I started songwriting and that was the path that I chose to take and, I've had lots of obstacles along the way, but also lots of good luck and lots of support from family, friends, and fans. Like, it's been pretty remarkable. And so that's sort of the direction that I took. And my music has evolved through the years. It really embraced being you know, a representative of the Dene Nation, and I call myself a musical ambassador because I get to travel to all of these places all around the world, where I did before the pandemic, <laughs> and uh, and tell people stories and sing, sing to people and, and hopefully open their hearts and minds and let them know a little bit about Dene people, Indigenous people, um, talk about the earth and talk about, you know, just wellness and healing and... and My goal is to, as an artist, is to continue on that path and just continually push myself. So that's kind of where I find myself um, now.
1: And speaking about fan support, I was listening to North Star calling earlier this week. And uh, your voice is beautiful and so powerful. And at that time, I was on your website and I saw a couple of fan comments like, I have attended many live performances, and there was a power in the energy created in your performance that cannot be replicated. Another one uh, says, an experience I'll always be thankful for, as it helped me feel the power and strength that lives within my ancestry and kin. How does it make you feel to receive these types of messages and knowing the impact you have had on fans with your music?
0: Wow. Uh, Thanks for reading those, Christina. I hadn't, hadn't read those that makes me feel very emotional and very grateful that my music means something to people and that it, it does what I want it to do, which is empower and uplift people. Like music is the universal language and it is one of the most powerful mediums for, for communication, for healing. Um, And I think there's no greater calling than being able to, do that for people and and fulfilling my my role on this earth which i feel that the creator's given me this gift and it's for me to share it and i'm just glad that it's impacted people in such a positive way
1: I recently read that you are currently consulting with music colleagues across Turtle Island on the creation of a National Indigenous Music Office to ensure musical sovereignty for Indigenous artists in the industry. Can you tell us more about that initiative and why it was important to you to take that step?
0: You really did your research. (laughs) That's amazing. (laughs) Yes, so I've been involved with uh, sort of on an ad hoc basis for the past like five or six years, but more formally over the past year and a half, um, with a group of people, mostly Indigenous artists, but some sort of Indigenous industry, music industry people, talking about, you know, the formation of a national organization. While there is an Indigenous screen office, we don't have a unified sort of national voice for Indigenous musicians. And I think it's really important because we need some kind of advocate that can speak with more impact and ensure cultural safety in venues and look towards how we can create our own musical sovereignty. So being in control of how we tell our stories and where we tell our stories how we're treated, um, matters of intellectual indigenous intellectual property and copyright um, protocols surrounding our music, so it's a very multifaceted sort of goal, but essentially it all stems from the the idea that we want to come together to uh, yeah to to help embrace our musical sovereignty and to to help improve connectivity just across the board between our own musicians, but also between us and the mainstream industry, and just uh, improve, I, I guess, you know, improve conditions for for all, for everyone, because it's not just, you know, like when we talk about something like reconciliation, um, it's very much, I think it tends to be viewed as, oh, this is for Indigenous people, but no, it's actually... When, when, th- when we improve things for us, we improve things for everyone. Like, this is the thing, is that, um, that if we can attain a kind of industry standard that is respectful, diverse, treats everyone with dignity and respect, and um, acknowledges traditional protocols, makes sure to lift up voices that, are, that have previously been in the margins, then that's going to improve life for all of us.
1: And if any listeners want to get more information or want to get involved somehow, what's the best way they could do that?
0: So far, it's been a national advisory and then um, a series of community engagements, consultations with our Indigenous musicians and and industry. And so I I don't even think we have a website yet, but if if listeners are, are really curious and or want a little bit more information, please feel free to reach out to me directly, and you can just Google Leela Gilde, and my website comes up. there's a contact on it, or any one of the um, social media platforms.:
1: And feel free to keep us updated as well, and, um, and we'll share along that information for you. Thanks very much. Yeah,
0: I'm sure that we'll we'll be able to um, launch our website in the next couple of months here. We're, we're going to be delivering a strategy document that's being written as we speak based on the engagements, the consultations we did over the last few months. So I'm really excited about
9: that.
1: Are there any upcoming shows or projects that our listeners can look forward to? I know maybe shows, maybe not so much uh, in terms of live, but have you been able to kind of plan anything or... Yes, actually, um,
0: I'm so excited that I am going to be playing at our local, our our territorial folk festival, Folk on the Rocks, this summer, and that's going to be in person. <laughs> so if you don't live in Yellowknife, or the Northwest <laughs> Territories, um, I am playing at a couple of festivals online, so uh, Mission Folk Festival and a couple of other ones that I'm. I'll, promote on my website but or on my social media rather but yeah the projects I'm working on right now are I'm actually writing a, a duo show with my brother Jay Gilday um, and we hope to tour that around the Northwest Territories around Dene De in, in the fall or spring and then I'm also writing an entire album and going to be hopefully recording in the fall time of songs all in my own language so all in, in Dene language
1: if listeners want to connect with you online and get a copy of your music, what's the best way they could do that?
0: Well, it just depends on what the preference is. On my website, com I have an order, a store, and so you can order physical copies of the CD, but I know most people don't have CD players anymore, <laughs> um, but T-shirts and all that kind of stuff. But other than that, you can get my music really on any platform, Spotify or iTunes or Amazon, or whatever your preference is.
1: It was a pleasure speaking with you, Leela. Thank you for taking the time.
0: Masi Christina, and to you and your listeners, thanks so much for the
6: support.
3: When we come back, the journey to reconciliation. Welcome back to The Feed. I'm Ann Romer. While today was primarily dedicated to celebrating Indigenous peoples, there's still so much work to do. Tina Cortez now
8: with where we go from here. Assembly of First Nations National Chief Perry Belgard is quoted as saying, "...all eyes are on First Nations as we attempt to digest the most recent evidence, the unmarked graves found in Kamloops, of the genocide against our people, our children." Joining our show is Dr. Pamela Palmeter, a Mi'kmaq lawyer, a chair in Indigenous governance at Ryerson University. Thank you for your time, Dr. Palmiter. Well, thanks so much for having me. If you were to describe the 2015 Truth and Reconciliation Commission recommendations, or more recently, the federal government's action plan to the findings of the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls National Inquiry, what would you say? How would you characterize it?
9: Well, there are really two different things. So the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's report was outstanding. It's a phenomenal piece of work. You know, it gathered so many stories of residential school survivors and family members of people who didn't survive those schools and even some of the staff that worked there to get a real insight on what happened and their calls to action, the 94 calls to action. Although, you know, the chair of the TRC at, at the time was uh, Marie Sinclair, said, you know, these aren't the only things we need to do, mm-hmm. but these 94 things are absolutely critical. I think it was really important uh, when the government came out and said, we're, go- we're committed to implementing all of these. Sadly, you know, in the six intervening years, they haven't implemented those, and the pace is exceptionally slow, one or two um, calls to action a year. Now, fast forward to the National Inquiry into Murdered and Missing Indigenous Women and Girls, and they have 231 calls for justice, and the federal government, literally two years later, um, put out a national action plan slash federal pathway that does not have an action plan, that does not commit to implement all of those uh, calls to justice, and nothing to protect Native women in the here and now.
8: So you've been studying, you've been volunteering, you've been working in First Nations issues for over 25 years. Not a lot of changes, I guess. What still needs to be done? Where does the country go from here?
9: Oh, my goodness. They, they need to really get their house in order. And I'm talking about, you know, federal governments, provincial governments, and all of the other institutions, like you think of healthcare, care, policing, social work, education. Um, there hasn't been substantive action. There's been bits and pieces. So what happens is you have a Royal Commission on Aboriginal Peoples in 1996, mm-hmm. decades ago. There's a lot of media attention on it. The government makes a lot of promises, and then it wanes, and everybody forgets about it, so that even Canadians forget to keep pushing governments to actually implement these recommendations. There's hundreds of recommendations in our cap. And then another report will come out. It'll, it could be the Ipperwash Inquiry about the OPP shooting of unarmed land defender Dudley George or the Donald Marshall Inquiry or the Ab- Aboriginal Manitoba Justice Inquiry or the Neil Stonechild Inquiry. I mean, there's been so many. And it always follows the same pattern. The government wants to study something. It's a delay tactic. They get the report. They commit to implement, and then they don't. What's different now I think what's making a significant difference is social media, the ability to educate Canadians directly without having to go through mainstream media and to give a more fuller picture of what's going on. And so the access to information is instantaneous. There's no uh, barriers to that. So we have a far more educated public, and because of that, you see them react quickly and swiftly to put pressure on governments to act. And I think that's a significant difference changing factor here in recent years.
8: And what will happen, do you think, at your own university, at Ryerson University?
9: Well, you know, it's, it's pretty hard to say because the issue of, you know, Egerton Ryerson being one of the thought leaders and architects of how to design these residential schools to make sure that children were taken away from their families I mean, this was also mentioned in the TRC, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. There's lots of historical information on that. Indigenous peoples, both staff, faculty, and students, and local community members, too, have been saying, you know, you've got to do something about this. So at first, Ryerson, you know, decided to have a ceremony, and then it decided to put a plaque by the statue of Ryerson. But that that wasn't enough. Um, to really get at the roots of acknowledging his role in what has now been termed uh, a genocide of Indigenous peoples. And so the failure to act in a pace that is consistent with reconciliation. So everyone wants to rush to reconciliation, but not do the hard stuff. People only want to do the easy stuff, like celebrate National Indigenous Day. Uh, it's a lot harder to change the name of a university or a sports team or a significant building in someone's community. So, you know, you've got people on the ground, um, faculty, staff, students who were engaged in protests saying, you know, you've got to remove this statue. And then you have faculty, staff, students involved in the consultation processes that's undergoing are going right now at Ryerson trying to get a handle on what's the larger perspective on what we should do both with the name and the statue and those two things um, were immediately impacted when we found the mass grave in BC in Chequepnick Territory of 215 small children from a former residential school site. I mean, that just brings it to, that brings everything to the fore to realize, look, it's been six years and you don't even have half of the TRC recommendations implemented and none of the National Inquiry's recommendations
8: implemented. So you talked about social media, but you also talked about the failure to act, that there is slow in change coming. Again, do you think that this issue, all of these issues, will fall off the radar once again, that they will fall off the you know, national news headlines as well?
9: Yeah, I fully expect that they will fall off of the national news headlines. However, I see Canadians consistently pushing back and trying to keep these issues in the forefront of governments. So, for example, 20 years ago when we won our court case at Supreme Court of Canada, the Marshall case, which proved that we had a treaty right to fish for a livelihood, and all of the violence ensued, and, you know, the RCMP stood by and let it happen – um we we didn't have a lot of support in the canadian public at the time this time around in toboggan agony where people could watch live rcmp standing there while Mi'kmaq people were being assaulted buildings were being burned boats were being rammed people were being shot at they could see for themselves the injustice and sometimes that's what it takes and because of that there was a profoundly different response um, not by the RCMP or the government but by Canadians which forced the RCMP and the government to the table to hold regular press conferences to say okay we're going to sit down and negotiate in a way they never would have before and and I think that's the role of Canadians to just keep it going to keep it going and you see that in universities in hospitals, in other institutions where they, they themselves, take up the calls to action in the TRC or the National Inquiry or the Royal Commission to make the changes that are required in their own institutions, because it's not just government.
8: will talk about calls to action. You've been a practicing lawyer for over 16 years. You have four university degrees. Tell us a bit more about your work.
9: Well, I'm I'm 23 years now called to the bar as a lawyer. Time time flies by fast, and I'm you know I currently work at Ryerson, but that's that's only part of my work. Really, I find the majority of my work is at the community level or the grassroots level. And what I like about where I am now is that. Everything all culminates in one. So before, I used to have to do my advocacy after hours. I used to have to do my, you know, community-based work after hours um, on my own time. And now everything, my, my legal education, all of my legal training, all of my research, publications, and my advocacy at the community level, they are all united together. And that, that's really helpful because I can use my work to contribute to advocacy. So the research I do, for example, helped inform my submissions to the National Inquiry in the Murder of Missing Indigenous Women and Girls because um, I had legal standing with other human rights partners, and we put our research together to that. And, and I think these are some of the ways in which academics or lawyers or researchers can give back and can make sure they're helping to support Indigenous issues and Indigenous advocacy all over the place. And, you know, similarly, all of that research uh, that I do supports my submissions to the United Nations Human Rights Treaty Bodies or the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights in Washington to consistently advocate for um, the international community to hold Canada to account for ongoing human rights breaches. So that's what I like about it.
8: Your mission to advocate for others, to give back, is that your message to all Canadians at this point in time?
9: Yeah, well, I mean, unfortunately, Canadians have been educated by, you know, the education system and politicians and the media to believe that to be a good citizen, your job is to vote every four years. And to my mind, that would be the bare minimum that a citizen could do, a citizen has to remember that they are in fact the government. All they're doing is electing spokespeople, but the citizens themselves are the government if you're in a true democracy, which is about the people, by the people, for the people. And so their job to keep their communities and other citizens safe and healthy and living the good life the way they want to is to take an active role in governing. And, and that means holding governments to account. That means putting pressure on governments and institutions to do the right things, to make sure that human rights are being upheld, to make sure we're protecting the environment, to be interested and active and involved and care about your neighbor. That's what real people governing power is all about and only voting every 4 years basically gives politicians a a, a blank check to do whatever it is they want. If You know, the citizens are tuned out and not actively engaged. And while I come from a different context, I come from the Mi'kmaq Nation, my family raised me in the context that if I was going to identify as a Mi'kmaq person, I had to first and foremost be consistently contributing to the nation and the betterhood of the nation and the people in that. And of course, once I got older, I realized My advocacy isn't just for Mi'kmaq people, it's for all Indigenous peoples and ultimately all peoples in terms of human rights and the environment. So I think it's really important that people get involved and stay involved and it's everybody's business whether or not we have a healthy, safe society that's good for everybody.
8: Dr. Pamela Palmiter, if our listeners want to learn more about you or follow you online, where can they find you?
9: Well, the easiest place is my website, uh, pampalmeter.com, because that's where all my YouTube videos are, my educational YouTube videos, my Warrior Life podcast, which features the voices of grassroots indigenous peoples and advocates making a difference. I have a Warrior Kids podcast, so for all those people with kids who want to learn more about indigenous peoples in a kid-friendly way, that's there my Indigenous Nationhood blog, all of my research publications, op-eds, and extra resources, like things that I think that people should be reading and following, all in one place. And, you know, my name, Pam Palmiter, I'm also on Twitter and TikTok and Instagram and LinkedIn and Facebook. So whatever your preferred social media is, we can connect.
8: We thank you for your time.
9: Thank you so much for having me and covering these important issues.
8: It was after our interviews for this broadcast that the Cowessess First Nation announced a preliminary finding of 751 unmarked graves at the former Marival Indian Residential School in Saskatchewan. The Indian Residential Schools crisis line is available 24 hours a day for anyone experiencing pain or distress. The number 1-866-925-4419. If you missed any part of our show, go to
3: 1059theregion.com for the free podcast edition. We leave you now with the music of Leela Gilde's new album, North Star Calling. I'm Ann Romer. Thank you for listening.